It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Camilla Kahn about her book, Mental Capacity and Relationship, Decision-Making, Dialogue and Autonomy. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. I'm actually really lucky and pleased to speak to Camilla because it's the second time I've had the chance to speak to her. So you can also listen to the other interview um, which is also on our website, about her other book that she co-wrote with Alex Rux Keane. Just to tell you a little bit about Dr. Camilla Kong, she's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck at the University of London. She's the principal investigator of the project Judging Values and Participation in Mental Capacity Law. Camilla is a moral and political philosopher with research expertise on medical legal conceptualization of mental capacity, the Ethics of Psychiatry and Psychiatric Genomics and the Hermetics, sorry, Hermetics and Phenomenology of Mental Disorder. Camilla, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jane. It's a Again. pleasure. Yeah, no, it's the pleasure's all mine, really. Um, so just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Mental Capacity and Relationship? Um, so as you mentioned, my background is in more on political philosophy, and I, uh, my, my PhD thesis really looked at um, theories of practical reasoning in the tradition of moral philosophy. And once I finished my thesis, I was really interested in just kind of continuing um, this long-standing interest in how we conceptualize reasoning, how we conceptualize agency. Um, and so I was a very lucky recipient of the British Academy Postdoctoral Fellowship to write this book. Um, and it was just really to try to extend my interest in this area of practical reasoning and agency to, um, you know, kind of medical juridical issues. I'm particularly interested in um, how we understand those contrast cases in the philosophical tradition, um, those cases which are considered non-ideal. Um, we tend to think about rationality and practical reasoning and agency in these ideal terms. And so people with impairments of some kind, with disabilities, are always seen as falling outside this circle of these ideal conditions. And so I think one of the things that has emerged and, um, and, and this book has tapped into is this kind of long-standing interest in how we can have a more inclusive philosophical account, which means that, you know, individuals with different forms of coping, different forms of knowing the world and engaging with the world are not seen as somehow outliers of our, what is, you know, what we might considered to be worthy of respect, worthy of validation, worthy of, of understanding. And so that's sort of how the book really emerged. And I actually really love that about the book because you do tackle all of these really difficult and complex issues that are sort of, you know, like um, in law and legislation, both domestically and then also in respect of, say, for example, the UN 
Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, you know, the sort of more obvious cases, I think, are more easily solvable, but it's these really difficult cases that there isn't a simple solution and, you know, the laws don't really seem to fit. So I really did enjoy that about the book and how you applied both philosophy and law um, to some very real feeling cases. Now, I want to just go to where, where you open the book about problems with mental capacity. Um, and so that's the title of the first chapter. And so in this part, mental capacity is contextualised in the universal importance of autonomy, but notwithstanding its significance, you write that the right to decision-making has only been extended to people with impaired mental capacity fairly recently. Now, in this space, you see you raise this sort of seemingly contradictory tension, and I think this comes back to this idea of hard cases. So on the one hand, the law, and I mean, please correct me, um, if I've misunderstood, but the law places great significance on a person's ability to make decisions based on their mental capacity, even if this means that at times decision-making capacity may require support from others. But at the same time, there's this gap in the recognition of how relationships influence mental capacity and the decision-making process. Now, in providing somewhat of a working framework for the book, can you describe how legal practice pulls in opposite directions in this sense? That's That is between what you describe as interpersonal source of capacity and also the intrapersonal source of capacity? So I think that, um, I think it probably goes back to the UN Convention um, and, and really, and also the kind of interplay between the, the, the UN CRPD and mental capacity regimes like the one that is in England and Wales. Um, and, and I think that this kind, these tensions arise in both sets of of laws, really, or you know, and convent in the convention and um, and the the mental capacity act in England and Wales. So, the the intrapersonal dimension of capacity really emerges in our kind of functional accounts of capacity, where there's an emphasis on what is your internal process of reasoning. Um, what is your deliberative process and how do you express your reasons to others? And so it, it, there's a lot of emphasis on mental capacity and decisional capacity being within one's head. So in that respect, it's kind of an intrapersonal dimension, which is supposedly tracked by the functional test. And um, where you see the CRPD, they, they re reject this account, and, and, and rightly so, because they emphasize about how disability is a construction of society. It's, it's reinforced by kind of the, the, um, the barriers that are created in society and our, our political structures and our, you know, sociocultural structures, etc., our economic structures. Um, and they also make provisions about how important it is to have supports in the, the um, in, in this account. However, um, there is also a strong emphasis on that intrapersonal autonomy, that person, that the, the individual as the locale of preferences, of the expression of their will. So there's a very strong emphasis on the individual. And the, what the book is really trying to do is emphasize how capacity is interpersonally situated. It is situated within some kind of intersubjective dialogue, you know, so the dialogical conditions in which one is placed um, matter, how one communicates matters. Um, it is, so it, and it's really to also displace this emphasis on the individual that is being questioned about their capacity, impaired capacity, or the assertion of their legal capacity, etc., and to really examine what are the conditions, the social conditions, the dialogical conditions that facilitate the competencies in order to make some make a decision um, when you have conditions of, of embodied impairment of some kind. Yeah, and so then I think that your argument comes through that you're right, that mental capacity must be conceived of as a relational concept that can be enhanced through intersubjective dialogue. Can you explain more what you mean by this? So I, I suppose the very, it's very simply stated in some ways that we don't, we tend to perceive that reasoning is all within one's head, you know, that I am going to deliberate about what I'm going to have for breakfast, what I'm going to wear, and these are all the, you know, 
my own preferences and this is my own process. I go through a process of deliberation that is somehow removed from the social context, within, removed from my relational conditions. But um, if you just even think about that preference, about what you wear today, about how that could also be um, that is that is situated within certain conditions. So when you're, um, because I have young children, and I'm just thinking about that, at some point when they will, will express a preference for wearing some, uh, you know, a wholly inappropriate piece of clothing, you know, I will be a person influencing their decision around what they wear. So this is a very mundane example, but if you think of the more even more profound questions about. Um, whether one has uh, is, is make a decision about refusing treatment based on their religious convictions um, and they've grown up with certain religious commitments you know what we have to also we have to always determine how do those relational conditions and those um, how do they impact on the formation of one's preferences the formation of one's values and the expression of those uh, those values through one's decisions yeah, and um, and it makes sense. Um, so I just want to try and sort of sum up a little the overarching arguments in the book. And again, please like tell me if I'm like way out of line or do correct me. So the sort of first argument, um, you write that an individual's environment, particularly one's surrounding relationships, affects one's ability to make decisions. And so you sort of touched on this just a moment ago. In this space, you argue that Supportive environmental relational features will cultivate autonomy competencies within individuals with impairments, namely a range of socially acquired perceptual, psychological, oh, sorry, yeah, psychological, emotional and cognitive skills necessary to engage with the world and make choices in accordance with one's values. Conversely, the absence of supportive relationships and environments or the presence of abuse, manipulation and coercion can't fundamentally disable individual's decisional abilities. Do you want to talk first to this point and then we can sort of move to the other arguments? So that, that argument really is informed by um, a lot of work in, in feminist philosophy, for example, um, because there is an emphasis on looking at the social context and the and the process of socialization in which one's autonomy competencies are developed. Here I'm heavily influenced by the work of Diana Myers, um, whom I think wrote a brilliant book uh, about this, about um, her account of relational autonomy. And it's really to emphasize how we tend to think autonom of autonomy as an achievement, an individual achievement that one, it, it, it's, it's sort of um, manifest in one's uh, assertion of one's will or, and, or certain um, mastery of one's will in some form right so that you in, in you might have conflicting preferences for example but you you override them with a more long-standing desire um for example or or you make a decision based on your long-standing values you know etc but it's seen as a kind of individual achievement and the the point about the that i'm trying to make in that argument which is really as i said following diana mars is about how we cultivate certain competencies that allow us to make autonomous decisions. And this, is, this occurs within context. This can occurs in a context where we can be supported, we can be um, properly um, provided with the, the narratives that, that, that provide self-esteem and, and, and allow us to cultivate an authentic sense of self. Um, but equally, we could be in situations where uh, where our relationships um, are barriers to that. Um, and we actually cultivate an inauthentic self, a self that is fundamentally just in a reflection, a reflection of, 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 of our relationships, our toxic relationships, for example. And I mean, I, I think that this is kind of a, a long-standing interest of mine around the influence of trauma for, and, and how this can impact our Form the formation of our desires and our preferences and our values, and real and and to probe that question about well is that an is that an authentic self? This self is it you know the preferences and desires and and values are all egocentric as in consistent with one another, but they reflect 
um, very, very toxic narratives or toxic relationships, and um, and they've been internalized. And so those can be real barriers to the, the expression and the formation of autonomy competencies. And I think that really leads into the sort of next main argument where you talk about, in some cases, um, third-party interventions may actually be justified, for example, in cases of disabling relationships. Um, but And you're right that these interventions must be justified and carried out with certain ethical constraints. Do you want to talk more to this point also? So I don't think that there is a, it's a free-for-all um, in terms of the kind of interventions that are permissible. They, they, all, they have to be constrained by a, a kind of telos or an aspiration towards the promotion of autonomy competencies and, and, and en enabling um, the development of those competencies, of be being in, in a situation where one is, um, is, is able to develop those. Um, I, I think that there was one case I cite in the book, and I can't, for the life of me, can't remember this at this point, but um, it, there was a really lovely example of this young man who had a, a real dependency on his mother, but you know he was forced to basically stay in the corner of their their um, a, a homeless shelter, effectively, I think, and uh, and he could not move, so he had to urinate and defecate in the same position in all this, and um, and there was a, a, a case which was trying to determine whether it was permissible to remove him from this these conditions under the uh, the MCA, and he at that time had expressed that he, how much he had wanted just to stay with his mother and how much he had been attached to his mother, and. But they, they ended up removing him and he ended up being in a far better situation where he was able to flourish as a, a self, you know, and flourish as a, and develop his own independent preferences. He wanted to have a girlfriend. He wanted, and it was just, so, so it's, but it's, it's not just because uh, they, they, you're trying to impose your own vision about how their life ought to be in substantive terms, that this person ought to be, you know, X, but in some respects to just enable them the, the possibilities of developing those competencies, those emotional, psychological um, and rational competencies to make decisions for themselves. That was a really interesting case. I can't remember the name either, but um, the situation that the man was in was really quite sad. So um, it did raise some like really interesting sort of um, tensions you know he's expressing one view but you know as you say he wasn't able to flourish until he was away from that dependent and even arguably abusive relationship so, so that was really interesting reading cases like that to show how this tension can play out um, and then finally I mean and this goes to sort of the ethical constraints you just said it, it's not a free-for-all you write about um how capacity assessments themselves are intersubjectively situated and that the very manner in which these assessments are carried out can have a profound effect on the individual whose capacity is under scrutiny. Capacity adjudications are informed by their particular medico-judicial environment, by their own traditions, preconceptions, and therefore are not value neutral despite their air of objectivity. And then in this context, interpretive skills of capacity adjudicators hinge on the exercise of critical reflexivity within the medico-judicial context, where background values and presuppositions in judgments are explicitly, oh sorry, are explicit and open to scrutiny, even if the outcome of the capacity adjudication overlaps with what we think is morally defensible. Can you talk a little bit about this, about how, you know, these judgments are actually not value neutral? And I do remember from your um, other book as well, this point really came through, it really struck me, um, the, mental, the book, your book on Mental Capacity Act in 2005? Um, uh, I think that there is a temptation to treat capacity assessments as a, as a kind of checklist mm. or there is a, there's also a, a temptation to think about, oh, well, I'm, I'm assessing a person's capacity and I'm kind of removed from certain dialogical conditions and I'm also certain, I'm, I'm value neutral. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think I don't think it's conscious. I think that, but it's it's a kind of professional standard. And we, in some of our research we, with lawyers, we've also seen how much that permeates in the 
the kind of professional culture, that, per, that perception, because it's seen as, a, as an ideal, for example. Um, and my, my point here is to really stress how one is always situated in, in certain um, presuppositions. Now, here, I've, I think that my, my biggest influence has been the work of um, Godamer, um, Hans-Georg Hans Godamer, and he writes in Truth and Method about how we are all situated in an interpretive um, relationship, as it were. You know, mm -hmm. So we cannot remove the fact that we have prejudgments or prejudice. And one of the cr critical points that he makes in that book is how we tend to think of prejudice in a quite a pejorative manner. But in fact, prejudice is literally prejudgment. It's what we start from, the position we start from when we always are, we start from somewhere. And um, I think that my point there is to really stress how one has to acknowledge that you are embedded in prejudice of some kind. And part of the interpretive situation in a capacity assessment is to also be aware and reflect on one's own, what, what, where one starts from and what is being evoked in one's engagement with the person who is being assessed. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. It is sort of, you could almost say, a myth of judging in the judicial system that, you know, we are able to be objective and value neutral when, I mean, we're all human and we do start from somewhere, as you say. Um, so I want to turn sort of then to two points that you've touched on um, already, the sort of internal and external challenges to the concept and the test of mental capacity. So firstly, turning to the internal challenge, you write that legal applications of the functional test often make two philosophical contestable assumptions. Firstly, that autonomy is individualistic rather than relational concept. And also that capacious reasoning is an intrapersonal rather than an interpersonal act, reflective of the individual's own cognitive processes. Both of these assumptions are inattentive to ways in which autonomy and rationality are vulnerable to internal as well as external compulsions. Whereas also you've mentioned already, there's this external challenge that comes from the CRPD. Um, do you wanna talk about both of these points? So the internal challenge is in some respects highlighting how the, the functional test and the, the account of how mental capacity is measured is sort of philosophically incoherent. Um, it is, and, and what I find a little bit worrying is how legal interpretation of, of a mental capacity in some ways has reinforced that, that kind of perception that capacity is in one's head because there is a strong emphasis in England and Wales, for example, about the causative nexus between the impairment of the mind and the ability to decide. And so the emphasis on that causative nexus, the language is very, very evocative about how there is a kind of causal connection between that impairment of one mind and the ability to decide. And in some respects, that is, it's, it's philosophically problematic because there is a lot of work that has shown how um, and that account of decision making is, um, is, is, is kind of reductive and ignores a lot of, um, you know, the, the, the relational conditions, important features of our decision making that are just not captured in, in that account. But it's also... Um, it, it, problematic from a phenomenological perspective because it is in some respects not attentive to the phenomenology of impairment and about how one um, and, and the embodiment of impairment and coping and understanding and engaging with the world when one has certain impairments of the mind. And, and if one is to be attentive to that, um, then you have to move away from a, a, a purely cognitive um, account of capacity. The, in, the, the external challenge comes with, as you mentioned, the CRPD, because I mean, the CRPD fundamentally, um, well, depending on your interpretation of Article 12, 
fundamentally questions the, the validity of the notion of mental capacity. And so there are obviously are divergent interpretations of Article 12, but if we take them, the one that has been highly influential, which is the committee's interpretation of Article 12, the notion that you can have um, any mental capacity regimes, any account of, of, of assessing mental capacity and imposing best interest um, decision-making that is seen to be fundamentally invalid. And so this sort of picks up on the point you write later in the book, or also in this section, about how there's this sort of like idea, like this liberal idea. Um, I think that the CRPD committee in its interpretation of Article 12 almost picks up that, you know, this sort of like hands-off approach to autonomy. Um, and, you know, the idea is to sort of offer support but not intervene um, in any way, there's this emphasis on, you know, individual autonomy. So then in like your argument, how can you contrast um, these ideas of individual approaches to rights um, in comparison with the concept of relational rights? So the, the account of relational rights, I think, challenges that notion that we can have a very, um, that we can adhere to the public private mm -hmm. distinction in 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 a hard and as a hard and fast rule mm -hmm. and i think that the liberal commitment to autonomy and individual rights really has this set in stone in, in many ways so um if we think about relational rights and work that has been done on relational rights like jennifer nadelsky's work she emphasizes how for example in 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 the context of domestic abuse um, and rape and, 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 you know, kind of crimes against women and violence against women, um, where in order to track the problematic implications of, 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 of the public and private distinction, um, we just need to look at these cases because in some respects, the public-private distinction falls away if we're thinking about how yeah. a liberal commitment to individual rights there's a sense in which we, we we protect the private sphere, and the domestic sphere is seen as the primary example of the private sphere. But as soon as we are interested in the implications of the law and how it affects women, for example, then we have to question that private-public distinction in set in the law because the implication is that um, you know certain certain crimes, certain wrongs, are not enforceable um are not you, you cannot actually account for them you cannot actually um you know that is it's not possible given the fact that it's seen to be in this sphere of the private as opposed to what is legitimately within the public sphere and is um and, and is worthy of inter intervention so then i think um my next question hints at what you just sort of saying now, can you talk then about how a relational analysis of rights can actually promote decisional capacity? I think that it means that we are more attentive to our place and our role in affecting decisional capacity. Um, I think that the strong, the, the emphasis, as I mentioned in this book, is to focus on how we as a community might affect the decision making of individuals, um, and it, and you know, it, it, I think it's it's kind of in that respect. I think it's a, quite a global argument about how um, we all are affected by our communities and our relationships. And um, <clears throat> so, if we're thinking about the context of rights and promoting um, the decisional autonomy of individuals, then we have to think about how. What our narratives are, how we are um, communicating and interpreting certain individuals that are seen to have um, we we seem to have impairments of some kind, um, we have to be attuned to those to certain perceptual cues. We have, I think, there's just what it what it what it means is that there is far more work to be done on our part to promote the autonomy, the decisional autonomy and capacity of, of other individuals. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. Um, so then sort of applying this theory, maybe we can talk now a little bit about um, some of the examples that you gave in the book and how you applied 
this sort of philosophy and how it's uh, just to show how it sort of plays out. So one of the cases you gave was of Anne, a young woman who struggled uh, with anorexia nervosa. Um, and, and then there was also Rob who experienced his first serious schizophrenic episode as a 17-year-old. And he may have been the person in the uh, book who became the subject of the relationship of dependency and helplessness and reliance on his mother. So that was... Um, that you mentioned earlier. And then there was also Joan, the older woman who was living in a care home because she had dementia. Now she seems to undergo almost a major shift in her, perhaps her personality, but certainly also her values and relationships. Um, I remember you wrote about, you know, she was a very, I think, conservative uh, woman who really valued her marriage. But then when she had dementia, she sort of wanted to um, break out of that mold. So I'm wondering if you can sort of apply some of these arguments in some of these cases a little bit. So I think, I mean, to, to go back to the example of Anne, um, yeah. and uh, I think that, that that's the example that really interests me. Um, I mean, all of them do, but yeah. <laughs> that one is, is partly because in, in this case, I think the way that I set it up is that um, her... And, and I think it's also commonly attributed to people with anorexia is that they their reasons are egocentric, that their reasoning is very, very consistent. So it fulfills all the conditions in which we might um, think apply in a functional test of capacity that she would she would pass this. And I think um, Applebaum has written about this as well. Um, but one of the things one of the features in that case study was about how her her family context was highly mm. um, highly demanding and there was a certain context where she was consistently told she wasn't good enough it was you know so there are certain toxic narratives that surrounded her and reinforced this sense of you know her needing to be thin I think there was a, a lot of pressure for her to be in ballet or something mm. I think I, I yeah. wrote something along those lines um, and I think that the way that one would apply my philosophy in that case is to think about the impact and to assess the impact of those narratives. And, and because on the, on, the, on the face of it, her reasoning is purely con is, is consistent, you know, and it's like, but just if, if we were to think about the functional test in, in a very a simplified form, the stripped back form that you know that that we can see the the MCA, for example, in England and Wales. Um, it would be hard to say that she she lacks capacity to refuse mm -hmm. treatment. Um, all her it, her reasoning to refuse treatment is aligned with her values. It's aligned with her vision of herself. Um, but I think that the with with the, the the tools that I'm trying to um, to advocate for the, that I, I, I argue for in the book is to suggest that we have to look beyond that just that discrete mode of deliberation at that point. We have to think about the broader context in which well how how have her narratives been developed? I mean, you know, what is her sense of self um, expressing? Is it expressing a kind of authentic vision of herself? Um, is it has she even had the opportunity to develop a sense of, yeah. of an authentic self that is premised on certain, I think, substantive conditions? Um, you know, and I, I talk about the substantive conditions later on in the book about these nurturing relations to the self, and um, and I think that this does not mean in the first instance that you always intervene you know I, I think yeah. that there are but it, it, it does mean that the scope of our inquiry is broadened so that we at least try to understand the context in in much more detail and think about it as relevant to the assessment itself and then this relates to this idea that um that you know patient autonomy has become dominant so you cite paul root wolf and you write that patient autonomy has now emerged as the most powerful principle in ethical decision-making in medicine, but that respect for patient autonomy requires specific conditions. So can you talk about maybe the implications on this emphasis on autonomy in decision-making? 
I think in the context of the law, I mean, we can see mm. that in the, um, the you know, certain interpretations of the of Article 12 and the CRPD, the strong emphasis on will and preferences, the expression of individual will and preferences, and acceding to those will and preferences, regardless of the content. Um, and I think that it, that is also, you know, evident in some, you know, in, in some cases where we're have a strong emphasis on how what an individual expresses and that kind of being the last word um what i'm it, there's also a problem and i don't write about it in this uh, in this book but i mean some further work that i have done is looking at the concept of what it means to make a peace-centric decision for an individual in the context of mental capacity law, because there is a strong emphasis on well, we're going to have our decision, our best interest decision making is peace centric, and the proceedings are peace centric. But there's very little understanding about what that actually means in substantive terms. Often it is just seen as equivalent to, well, we we need to adhere to the wish the the wishes and feelings the preferences of the individual and that's kind of the last word but in some respects that is um, a a, a fairly reductive account of what our obligations are to individuals in these circumstances and peace centricity really means something far deeper about the kind of moral orientation that we uh, approach in uh, in which we approach an individual it it reflects the interpretive situation how we interpret and understand individuals are we you know, so so I think that there's there's far more um, that is required, and the the problem with uh, you know this adherence to autonomy as just the kind of last word is that we a we we don't ever start from a very enriched account of autonomy. That's part of the problem. But b then when we do assume that we have um, you know that autonomy is our, our our, our lodestar, as it were, you know, our, our, it, it means that other ethical obligations and, um, and and duties to the individual just sort of fall away. Yeah. Um, and I think we also find this when we think about individuals who are found to have capacity, and then they are effectively left to um, languish in their own situation, and I mean that that has happened. That has emerged in some of our interview data. That we, I mean, it's not related to the book, but it's related to the project that I currently run. Um, it has also emerged. Uh, I think there was a, a, a submission in one of the the reports in the House of Lo- the House of Lords post scrutiny report, where there was a worry about how capacity and the finding capacity means that individuals. Are basically left to their own devices, and they're not provided the supports that they they are entitled to and they require um, in order for them to flourish. Yeah, and I think that was a really interesting point um, that you know supporting autonomy just to sort of like oversimplify a bit, but supporting autonomy doesn't necessarily mean this sort of hands off approach in every case. Um, so then can you tell me a little bit about this concept of absorbed coping? Um, it's not something I was really familiar with, but I found it really interesting. So I have a, a long-standing interest in phenomenology and mm-hmm. uh, um, and the, the, there's some wonderful work that has been done um, in the in this tradition uh, by Dreyfus and um, Samuel Todds and um, and the account of absorbed coping is to really push back on the on, on the the assumption that valid coping, valid knowing, valid engagement with the world requires kind of cognitive, rational thought. In some ways, it is to to reclaim the precognitive space in which we cope and understand and engage with the world and say that that actually is a valid way of understanding and knowing the world in its own right. Mm-hmm. So um, when we think about the, I, I use this example because I'm a keen gardener, I love gardening. Mm-hmm. And so I was just thinking about, you know, the kind of automatic actions that you do as a gardener, that you yeah. don't think about them. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, when I'm placing a spade in the ground, I don't think 
that I need to place it in the ground or mm -hmm. I need to, I need to, or I hit a root and I need to move it. I don't think this. Mm -hmm. Part of my skill as a gardener comes with just knowing and doing these actions automatically. Mm -hmm. And why absorbed coping is so important in the context of, of impairment, in my view, is because it, it, it identifies how alternative ways of, of knowing and engaging with the world that from, from the outside might not look like they are engaging in any reflective thought, might in fact reflect very, very knowing and um, you know, way, skillful ways of engaging with the world. I mean, I, I, I go. I use a lot of examples from the reason I jump and Naoki Higashida's mm -hmm. work, and it's just he, his his work is wonderful in that regard, to really highlight how his the, the impact of his impairment, but how this mean how this it manifests itself in a different way of engaging with the world physically, with time, with the kind of phenomenological. Um, the grounding, our phenomenological grounding when we think about space and time, right? And how this, his body engages with these aspects, these conditions of experience in an entirely different way. And then I, I also think about um, examples of trauma, because if we think about examples of severe trauma and, you know, where um, you have conditions of, say, unstable uh, emotional um, dysregulation right and there there and a lot of self-harming for example these are actually coping behaviors yeah. and it is important to actually acknowledge that these are coping behaviors rather than mm. they, they might be we might say that they're at the end of the day dysfunctional or harmful to the individual mm. but you have to actually validate those modes of coping and engaging with the world because they reflect a way of of navigating and negotiating the world in a successful way for the individual and their embodiment and their experience. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading um, about uh, the book, uh, The Reason I Jump. I'm sorry, I've forgotten how to pronounce the um, author's name. Um, but yeah, it's just so interesting. I think the protagonist was, he, he had autism um, and um yeah, it was really, really interesting to read about that and um, how, you know, this concept of absorbed coping actually, um, how it works and applies. So, yeah, that was really great. And uh, your, in, uh, your sort of example of gardening I found really interesting just now too. Um, I'm a keen runner and so I feel exactly the same. You know, I don't think about all the motions that I'm going through. You just sort of do and it is your way of sort of being in the world and existing and coping and reacting um and and the thing is is that if you injected thought into mm. it that would also reflect that you are not as skillful as a runner as you yeah. should be yeah. yeah so it's in some respects that 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 kind of those automatic adjustments that we make shows how skillful we are mm. um and it's not that it's not a result of cognitive thought yeah yeah, exactly. Um, no, so that was super interesting. Um, so then I want to talk about, you know, in these sort of examples, how do we avoid, you know, paternalism? Because, you know, um, people with impairments have encountered this long history of sort of paternal intervention. So how do we try and avoid this in these sort of really difficult cases? I think a lot depends on the, the competencies of of those who are intervening, really. I mean, and I, uh, um, because there might be justification for those interventions. There might be strong ethical and strong legal reasons why there is an intervention. Um, and in, in some ways that, you know, the argument to to set aside, well, not necessarily set aside, but to question the this hard and fast private and public distinction is precisely to, um, to say that there are scope, there is scope for legitimate intervention, but how you avoid paternalism is in some ways with your orientation, your interpretive orientation, your own ethical orientation as an intervener. And that's why I, I feel that the, the crux of the book um, is 
really highlighting the what I call the hermeneutic competencies of assessors, of those who are involved in best interest decision making, because it is it all comes down to certain skills and competencies of those individuals. And and there is not enough emphasis on that as opposed to just focusing, well, this needs to be done, X needs to be done. But not, there's not a lot of discussion about, well, how and why? And um, and what what kind of um, what what is my stand stance and my orientation towards this individual as I am intervening as I'm assessing. So maybe can you talk a little bit more expand upon some of the ethical duties of support and intervention. So I think that the the obviously the duties have to be within the the appropriate constraints of. What is it for? You know that, that mm-hmm. so the endpoint has to be, in some respects, um, respectful of the individual. You know, so that's the the whole idea about intervention has to be one where you're promoting autonomy competencies, not one that where you are just placing them in another situation where they're only going to be cultivate other dependencies, yeah. and um, and not actually be allowed to find their own voice or cultivate their own voice. So I think that is one aspect that is is a major constraint. You know, what what is our intervention for? But they also, I think, have to be within a a framework of respect insofar as that, you know, individuals are seen as that they're given some deliberative standing, you know, that they are shown deliberative respect even in that process. So one of the, um, you know, so for example, individuals who might, we, we saw this in some of our field work for our, or not our field work, our interviews um, in, in the project that I currently run, how important it is for individuals, even if they know that the, 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 the decision, the final decision is not, in, not the one that they wanted, not the one that they favored, and they, um, but if they're shown deliberative respect throughout the process by, um, by the by the various lawyers, by the judge, in the end, that they will be far more receptive to that decision because they have been shown some kind of standing throughout that that process, which is a very alienating and difficult process. So, I think those are you know major conditions in which one has to adhere to, you know, that um, you have to show that individual that they have a certain moral standing in these proceedings. And then so you identify this sort of catch-22 situation in the recognition of decisional support, and it's almost a little controversial. Um, And, you know, the social model of disabilities emphasises universal legal capacity by protection of negative liberties and civil rights of people with impairments. But on the other hand, and Tom Shakespeare has also identified this, that even once social barriers to disability have been removed, there may be residual difficulties intrinsic to a person which can affect the extent of a person's disability. Now, the social model doesn't really seem to deal with this point, um, that at times supporting autonomy may effectively require intervention. You've talked a bit about this, but can you elaborate a bit more on this sort of catch-22 situation? I think it is controversial, and so mm. I don't want to. <laughs> and I, no, and I don't. I don't want to. Uh, you know, I, I think that the the language that I use in the book is already indicative about my position on it mm-hmm. in some respects, because, um, and I, and I and I don't want to paint all social model um, mm. dis, of disability theorists the same way because there yeah. are variations and there have been real refinements to in an effort to address Tom Shakespeare's point. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, part of my issue is to just really highlight how the how impairment and the kind of biological dimensions, the embodied dimensions mm. are important to consider and important to take yeah. into account. And that we 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 risk neglecting individuals and their needs if we do not actually acknowledge the reality of those effects uh, the, of, of, of one's embodiment. So I, I use this example about my niece, Ava, for example, who has Rett syndrome and about how if we did not really recognize and acknowledge that there are certain impairments of her body and these impairments are not value neutral, 
the fact that she has trouble swallowing is not a value neutral thing. It is, it is, it, it has profound implications in her life and it's not a desirable thing. But it doesn't mean that we define her based on that, but it means that in order to treat her properly, to, to, to attend to her needs appropriately, we have to always be mindful of how her, her, her embodiment can lead to certain limitations and be mindful of it and be attentive to it. Um, and, and that's the way that we actually don't define her by her disability yeah. in some respects, because we, we recognize that, you know, Ava's far more than her, her, uh, um, her limitations, but we have to see her limitations also as constitutive of, her, of, of who she is in some ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That it, that that is part of who she is. We accept who she is, but we have to attend to it and be um, proactive about it. Yeah, I did really enjoy reading about um, your niece Ava. She sounded just so lovely, and it was just a really nice way um, to sort of make what you write about really real. Um, so now, a sort of another argument from another side comes. Um, from care theory, and I think Jonathan Herring writes about this. Can you talk a little bit more about care theory and perhaps the merits and any limits that you see? So, uh, I mean, uh, it, it is interesting because I I did engage with Jonathan Herring's approach rather than the actual care theorists, mm -hmm. and I think some care theorists might say that I, you know, I should have engaged more directly with their <laughs> their. But um, I think my my choice was partly because I wanted to uh, look at how it's been applied to the law. But my my problem, I mean, I think care theory has strengths insofar as it does emphasize neglected dimensions that we might not think is relevant to the law. You know, so the importance of, of the burden of care, the importance of welfare, you know, these the importance of of the relational dimensions of of care and um these are all very important features but i think that what i don't it's a bit like autonomy i i i, I don't think that anything can be reduced to a single concept you know that our our, our duties our obligations our way of understanding um the complexities in this area of law is not reducible to a single concept the the other problem that I think it, it, I think is a, it's a slight shortcoming of, of care theory is that it does tend to be um, to be fairly reductive about the female experience yeah. and saying because it does it was seen as a kind of feminist rejoinder by some circles to theories of justice and um, I think that that kind of lineage makes me slightly uncomfortable because I don't think that by reclaiming the domestic labor of, of women and the, the fact that women are overwhelmingly um, carers and you know have the caring burden um, I don't think it redresses some core fundamental issues that we should be focused on in terms of um, I mean, I mean, just it just doesn't include issues of justice. It doesn't include, um, you know, the 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 role of rationality, or you know, as opposed to um, care. I think it's just the binary dimension of it. You know, care versus justice, or 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 whatnot. Yeah. It, it, I think it's just um, a little bit too reductive for my taste. Mm. Yeah, and that's um, really interesting. Um, it definitely gave me a lot to think about. So, um, thank you. Um, I want to turn next to your chapter on hermeneutic competence and the dialogical conditions of capacity. Can you first um, explain for the audience what hermeneutic competence is? Very simply, it is the it, it, it these competencies and hermeneutic competence captures mm -hmm. the competencies that are required for individuals who are, capacity, are the capacity assessor or mm. for yeah. basically those in, who are embedded in those relational conditions to enhance and enable individuals and their decision-making capacity. In some respects, then, we are all, we all need to cultivate hermeneutic competence. But what I, I'm trying to articulate here is the specific um, skills, the specific competencies that are required in, in acknowledging 
certain impairments of some kind and 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 what kinds of skills are required mm. in these conditions and also the and i should also um, um preface it also is that i mean the whole notion of hermeneutics and hermeneutic mm. it, it's i mean it stems from this again this godamarian notion that we are in an interpretive situation always you know we are always it, we are always embedded in some kind of interpretive context and so we can interpret and understand well and we can we can equally do this very badly and so it is trying to articulate how we interpret and understand others well yeah yeah and that makes sense so then can you talk also about the dialogical conditions of capacity so the dialogical conditions of capacity i think i mean it stems again from um godamer and what i mm -hmm. take what how i apply his philosophy which is to think about how uh, about our prejudgments you know mm -hmm. so with, with godamer when he talks about dialogue and the and how we engage in dialogue he says that um our prejudgments our prejudices effectively come into play and they are they and, and his notion of play is where they also become they become up for grabs effectively yeah. that we, we 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 find ourselves shifting constantly because our prejudices are up for grabs and we're, we're putting them at risk effectively in these dialogical conditions so you know for example um if i was to think about my my niece ava you know, if I was thinking about the dialogical conditions, I would say that I might, when I engage with her for the very first time, and I have no idea about how to engage with someone who is non-verbal and makes noises to express themselves, my my prejudgment, my initial prejudgment is that might be, well, oh, um, you know, Ava must be very, very stupid, you know, because she cannot use language and she, you know, she doesn't actually have values. Um, but to to actually attend and 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 question my prejudgment is to say to say well as i engage with her more and more and as i open myself more and more to her way of knowing and experiencing the world the more that my prejudgment that more that that prejudice is is no longer it might be questioned it might be well actually my my way of understanding the world my way of understanding her my way of understanding how people might engage and experience the world is shift has shifted is changed through that dialogical engagement with with Ava does that does that make sense yeah I, it really does <laughs> no no it really does um like just to sort of sum it up it's sort of about I think um questioning one's own prejudgment um in making assessments and it's yeah. it's also recognizing that you are you have those mm. you know to say yeah. that the idea that you do not have those mm. is not a valid assumption in this case yes so in in some respects the dialogical conditions of, of you know to to express that kind of skillful ability to understand and interpret someone you have to be mindful that i have these prejudgments i have these assumptions um sir mark headley in his wonderful book called the modern judge he he writes very eloquently about the fact that you know as a judge in the welfare jurisdiction he knows that he has these values he knows that he has these prejudgments and in some ways these are they, they are unavoidable and they can be unproductive they can be actually be a barrier to understanding somebody but they also equally can be productive sources of knowledge um, and the and, and in some respects, being aware of the fact that one is has these enables one's prejudgments and prejudices to be productive sources of of advancing knowledge and advancing understanding. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, and that certainly sounds like it should be compulsory reading for uh, not just people who work in welfare jurisdictions, but I think anyone who aspires to be a lawyer to recognise that they do have prejudgments um, and to be aware of these. Um, so then just sort of bringing all your points together in your final chapter on rethinking capacity, you sort of sum up with some key points. And it, um, please correct me. 
um, I've tried to sort of very briefly sum up. But so firstly, you argue that autonomy must incorporate phenomenological relational dimensions. Second, you write that the competence of those around individuals with impairments matters. Next, you argue that the content of self-constituting narratives matters. The fourth key point is that the boundary between capacity and best interests is blurry and elastic. And finally, you make the point that capacity as a socially situated, relational and dialogical concept transforms the role of the capacity assessor. Now, I know this is sort of like a very big question and it touches on so many issues, um, but I'm wondering if you can just sort of draw these key points together. Gosh, that's that's a challenge. <laughs> it's like it's basically the whole book. Um, so yeah. I apologise. I mean, I, I think that perhaps, you know, one way to think about it is how how this transforms our ideas of capacity in practice as well as conceptually. So I think that one of the key points is that we tend to think about capacity as a, a, a cliff edge, right? You have capacity or you don't. But yeah. um, an important feature of taking into consideration the relational conditions of capacity, of also understanding one's own role in facilitating capacity or, or being a barrier to capacity means that um, that boundary is, is far more fluid and the scope for intervention is a little bit more fluid. But what that means is that the justification for intervention, the justification behind defining a capacity has to be far more robust and transparent about and, and also being um, reflexive about how one has, has, has engaged in that encounter, as it were. How has one um, interpreted what has been said or expressed, you know, through words, through bodily action, through emotion? Um, how has one tried to understand um, and engage with the individual? Um, I think effectively, if I was to tie it all together, it just makes capacity, um, the role of capacity assessment, um, the, the, the findings of capacity assessment, it, it, it makes it far more demanding. Yep. Um, it, it, the, the, the justification, the grounding for it, it is, is far more demanding than we might envisage. And it is also the case, if I was to summarize all those points, um, it is to say that there are no simple answers, and that I and that's a very very, mm -hmm. you know, it's a typical academic response to practice to practice and you know and, and practical um, practitioners and judges and etc. They will all probably say, well, we at the end of the day we have to make a decision, and so mm -hmm. it it you know it it has to be in some ways simplified, mm -hmm. but I think a large part of this project about this about this book about what I've done subsequently has been to stress that there is so much nuance and complexity in this area and we do ourselves a disservice and we also do a, a huge disservice to the individuals who are affected by this legislation by by our concepts of mental capacity etc when we try to sim oversimplify the conceptual and, and normative terrain, and um, and part of and part of recognizing and grappling with that nuance and complexity is to learn to be comfortable with that complexity, mm. learn to be comfortable with that discomfort in some ways, and to think about how how am I embedded in my own values and my own you know, in my own interpretive situation, how, how do I understand others? And, you know, and that's an ongoing process. It is a skill that requires constant work and no one, you know, you just constantly improving on it, but it is always, you're always in different situations that require different skills, adaptiveness. And, um, and I think that's really the crux of it. Um, but it is, is to highlight how demanding that role is. It is not going to lead to simple answers and um, and simple simple principles. 
Yeah, and I, I think identifying that there are no simple answers and um, really focusing on the nuances and recognising them and the complexities does actually move us forward rather than the sort of knee-jerk reaction to oversimplify, which I think does take place in courts um, by way of necessity or not. But I, I do think, yeah, this is all, like, it's really important to recognise. And so now, Camilla, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, um, the final and traditional New Books Network question, what are you working on now? So I have... Um, I think I mentioned in your yeah. previous podcast how um, currently that I'm I'm still leading the Judging Values project and we are currently um, doing some very exciting work around training and communication for uh, legal practitioners. Um, we'll hopefully have a video that will be coming out soon that will be open access and everybody can access it if they're interested. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm also, uh, you know, really just, doing some further work on this, you know, in this area, very, I think this is a, 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 an area where you never really stop <laughs> um, yeah. examining certain questions. And I think, I mean, the, the, the biggest one that has, um, that, that has been interesting me um, lately has been about how do we understand and attribute intentionality to people with profound communication um, barriers and and how you know how do we understand that those conditions and um, and validate expressions effectively of, of people who, who who really struggle to communicate so I'd, I'd like to do some further work on that um, but yeah we'll see <laughs> Yeah, no, it sounds really interesting. And I mean, anyone listening, I would definitely recommend both of Camellia's books that I've read. Um, the first on a previous podcast um, was on the Mental Capacity Act in 2005. And what I loved about that is it takes all these really complex theories and it applies them in practice. Um, so yeah, it really sounds like the work you're doing now will be really, really relevant. But of course, today we've been talking about Camellia Kong's um, other book, Mental Capacity in Relationship, Decision-Making, Dialogue and Autonomy, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Um, Camilla Kong, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.